Have you ever noticed how Christmas and the Christmas season intensifies things? It exaggerates the emotions that lurk just beneath the surface of our lives. And if life is already full, then we're overwhelmed with Christmas. Ask any counselor or psychologist, and they will tell you that their offices are busier and more intense during the Christmas season. And if life has filled us with anger, Christmas fills us with rage. If life has made us resentful, Christmas encourages a feigned indifference. If life has made us lonely, Christmas fills us with depression. And if life has made us mourn, the Christmas season seems unreal, artificial. The season confronts us with the truth about ourselves and how we relate to those around us, our families, our friends, our communities, and our world. Why is that? And I want to suggest that Christmas confronts the gap between our longings and our experience. Think of someone you're at odds with or not talking to right now. If I were to sit down with you and if I were to sit down with them separately and ask them about their longings, my hunch is they'd be very similar or exactly the same. Ultimately, we all want the same things. Connection, love, freedom, peace, joy, happiness. Primarily connected to things that the scriptures tell us are the fruits of the Spirit. However, we all have different ideas of how to bring those longings into our experience and hence our tensions. These are the if onlys. If only my spouse. If only my brother or sister. If only my parents. If only my children. If only my boss. If only I had more. And our inner conflicts and our outer conflicts tend to be connected with tensions or differences in how these longings match our experience. This gap is likely always there. However, the Christmas season seems to make it more difficult to find distractions to avoid that gap. And so Christmas intensifies the chaos in our lives and in our relationships. Perhaps it turns up the volume on those things that we have avoided, drugged, suppressed, or denied. And we don't like chaos, physically, mentally, or emotionally. And the Christmas season's tendency is to make scrooges out of all of us. And there is so much to say bah humbug about. I want to talk once again about chaos theory. And I want to suggest that order and chaos always live together. I hate that. <laughs> chaos is the theory of surprises. Things that seem predictable suddenly become unpredictable because of what is called the butterfly effect. In meteorology and weather forecasting, the butterfly effect is described as this place where this convergence of storms from all areas and weather forecasters are trying to figure out which way this convergence is going to go. And somewhere along the line, it's refined to such a degree that a butterfly flaps its wings, and that's what determines 
which direction the weather goes. You experience that when you have something totally organized and you feel like you've got it under control and predictable, but then something arbitrary occurs that changes or affects everything. It came out of nowhere. And we don't like that. We love order. Science loves order. However, chaos theory suggests that in every ordered universe, there remains a chaotic disorder. In my family, we call it Schmidt Happens. <laughs> Our text today reflects this chaotic reality. It's filled with conflicting emotions and uncertainties that threaten to overwhelm, and it is only the intervention of angels, agents of the divine, that allow the players to accept good uncertainties when they are so tempted as we are by bad certainties. And like our time, the first century was chaotic. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, it was toxic. There's a Roman occupation. There's an oppressive legalistic ethos in the temple square. There's tension between the puppet governors and their overseers in Rome. There are some who deal with this chaos by moving into the hills and starting secret communities. There are others, zealots, who are planning revolt. And there are the masses who are suppressed and overtaxed by their overlords. And it is into this chaos that the divine spirit, God, once again seeks to enter humanity in a dynamic and incarnate way. And how does God do that? not cleanly, not powerfully, and in a lot of mess. It happens through an engaged teen who suddenly gets pregnant, causing controversy and scandal, which legally requires that she be stoned. There is a Joseph who is bewildered and confused, plans to dismiss her quietly. There is a Mary that says, how did this happen to me? What must her parents have thought? Understandable that she would leave her village and seek solace with her cousin Elizabeth, despite the comfort of the angel. The angels did not appear to her family and friends. The controversy and judgment were real. When, my son was, when our son was born, I was the first father that was allowed in the delivery room in the Abbotsford Hospital. Got me in the newspaper. I had a head nurse who was very unhappy with my presence. And as the beginning labor happened, I heard some crying. And I walked out into the hallway between the pangs, and here was a 14-year-old girl lying on a cot in the hallway expecting a baby, and she was all alone. And as I sat with her, she told me how she had been shipped from Saskatchewan in disgrace, at least within her parents. No one else knew about six months previously, and was living with her uncle and aunt, and they had dropped her off at emergency and left. And here she was, all alone. And as I sat with her in between Lynn's contractions, she held my hand and she said, how did this happen to me? She did not have a clue. And as I explained, she said, that's what happened when that boy did that? 
We can't look always to God necessarily to make things better. But we can look for the places where God joins us in this chaos. And perhaps God isn't there to change our circumstances. These are steered by this chaotic predictability. God incarnate comes to save us not from something, but for something, perhaps God's self. And to tell us that in the midst of the mess we are loved, not just in theory, but demonstrated by his joining us in this chaotic life. Emmanuel, God with us. And somehow Mary, with the help of angels, her cousin Elizabeth, and the blessing she gave, and perhaps the silence of her husband, and the anticipation of the birth of John as a precursor to her own child, finds a place in the mess of almost ecstatic joy. A joy that doesn't dispel the chaos, but transcends it. This is Scrooge on Christmas morning. He's beside himself with joy. And so in the midst of this chaos, we hear this great hymn of the church, the Magnificat. And whether these are words of a young teen or the words of spiritual imagination, their transcendence is overwhelming. And as Barbara Brown Taylor suggests, she is no longer singing the song. The song is singing her. This teenager is transformed into an articulate radical, an astonished prophet, singing about a world in which the last have become first and the first have become last. Sigmund Freud suggested that religion was an opiate of the masses, a drug, and sadly at times it is. We use it to tell others they're wrong. We use it to justify prejudice and fear and then build figurative and literal walls between humans. We use it to protect our interests. And when co-opted like that, it does become very addictive. But there are those places where faith and grace overwhelm us. And our only response is Scrooge's response on Christmas morning and Mary's response in the Magnificent. Once I was blind, but now I see. This isn't a scene of ideological understanding. It's not, I get it. This is a scene of acceptance, of yieldedness, of love. And it changes everything. William Barclay suggests that the Magnificat is the most revolutionary document in the world. Why? He says because it speaks of three great revolutions of God. Number one, it's a moral revolution. God scatters the proud. Christianity, when not an opiate, is the death of pride. And it holds also the key to surviving despair. It invites a faith that knows love right in the midst of our chaos. It's also a social revolution. The mighty are cast down and the lowly are exalted. It levels out this opiate the addictions of the world's labels and prestige. This isn't about punishment as much as about humility. Here there is no common man or woman. Here there is no rich or poor. Here there are no need for more adjectives or adverbs. Just, we are children of God. And it's also an economic revolution. 
He has filled the hungry and the rich he has sent away empty. Again, this isn't something that happens by force. Taking from the rich and giving it to the poor. This is Scrooge on Christmas morning, filled with love and generosity that spills over into the lives of the poor who cannot get over this transformation. And all are filled with gratitude and love. Scrooge isn't punished by having his coffers emptied. He is emptied of pride, arrogance, entitlement, and ignorance, and freely gives. And the emptiness he experiences is the emptiness of the burden that he was carrying. There is a loveliness in the Magnificat, but that loveliness is filled with explosives. The anticipation and birth of Jesus is the ultimate insurance that God is with us, right here in the middle of the mess. So may this Advent and Christmas season not only confront us with the truth about ourselves, but overwhelm us in chaos, overwhelm us with Emmanuel, God with us, right here, right now. And may we in this chaos also find our own Magnificat. Amen.